Welcome to the Tales from the Shadows podcast, a podcast about folklore, fairy tales and storytelling. I'm sorry for the long delay between this and the last episode. I've been struggling a little bit to adjust to uh, to the current situation. But on the bright side, this has prompted me to work out how to record an episode when the shadow gals and storytellers aren't in the same room or in this case aren't even in the same county because I am delighted to introduce a very special guest to the podcast, a fantastic storyteller and a good friend, Nisha Odin. We have mentioned him in passing a few times in the podcast and now you get to hear the man himself who not only was kind enough to come and discuss this particular topic with me but also to put up with me fumbling my way like the Luddite I am with trying to work out how to unmute myself and record the Zoom call. If you'd like to follow Nisha and see what he's up to and what stories he may be telling, there is a link to his Twitter in the episode description. And now, let's start the stories. I am now talking to Nisha. Uh, Nisha, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Nisha, former professional storyteller turned essentially amateur storyteller at the moment. I think you're still a professional storyteller. Yeah, it depends where the line is. Because remember in theatre, the line was always on whether or not you were getting paid for your work. And I'm getting so much emotional fulfillment, but... Yeah, no one's getting paid for their work at the moment. (laughs) No, we're artists. We don't need to be paid. It's fine. We live on exposure. Exactly. Well... I mean, how many people are going to see me, do, hear me doing this and want to hire me with non-existent cash? It's great. But spend my time telling myths, legends, reading folklore and other fun bits of information, which I hope will be useful once the inevitable apocalypse arrives. Uh, when it arrives? Oh, we're only in the early stages. So <laughs> you can't go full apocalypse yet. This is at best the prequel to it. I mean, what happened to the murder hornets? The murder hornets, as far as I know, are still on, on their way. All right, so, so we've just stopped talking about them. Yeah, there was too much else to be dealing with, so <laughs> murder hornets had to take a bit of a back burner. All right. And Nisha, you are, uh, you are quite a spooky individual. I try. Halloween is my favourite time of year. The first time I'm, I met you, I think you were introduced as the guy who haunts the basement? I probably was, because at that stage, I was pretty much living in the basement of the National Leprechaun Museum. I think they just started letting you upstairs. They were trialling it out, seeing if I'd actually take to civilization again, <laughs> and seemed to work for a year or two, but mm-hmm. back into the isolation now. But as I recall, that was, that was Culture Night, wasn't it? It was the dress rehearsal for Culture Night just before I spilt Bloody Marys all over the carpet. I was going to mention the Bloody Marys. For some reason, Tom was obsessed with making them for Halloween. Yeah, I, I don't know why. Um, so one of my first days on the job, I spilt tomato juice all over the carpet. Mm-hmm. Having shown up an hour and a half late, I don't know why they hired me. Because believe it or not, you still had a better first day than a lot of us. All right. I must hear about that. I this. recall arriving half an hour late for my first of official day there and getting the absolute shite torn out of me because I, I wasn't used to actually having to be on time for things. But on that, uh, on that first occasion when I first met you, it was also the first time I heard you tell a story. Oh? It was, indeed. 
And uh, the story happened that I first heard you tell happens to fit into the theme of today, which is... what is the theme of today? The Banshee. Ah. The Banshee, the Weeping Woman, the Woman of the Fairy exactly. Mound. I think she's got a few other names as well. It all depends on the part you're, of Ireland you're from. Like, uh, just brief book plug for anyone who is looking for more information on the Banshee. There's an excellent book called The Banshee. Uh, it's by Patricia, whose second name I will hopefully recall before the end of this session. But if you just look up Patricia Banshee, it's the it was her, I believe, doctoral study on the Banshee Ooh. throughout Ireland. And it's amazing. At the pride and joy of the book is the index because it lists all known regional variational names. Oh, wow. It lists all the families that are known or have claimed to have a Banshee. And also has a catalogue of all story types associated with the Banshee. It's excellent. Nice. I, I wish I had had a copy of this before the episode. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> on the regional names, the one I mentioned just there, the band Quinta is one that's always interested me because it's, it's really popular out west uh, in the west of Ireland. And for some reason, randomly in Wexford, nowhere else in Lancaster, only in Wexford, it, the band Quinta, which for the non-Irish speakers, including you and me. Yeah. It's the Keening Woman, mm. which we might get back to a bit later. Yeah, because that, that is the thing that sort of seems to be a universal between all Banshee types, because they're hard to nail down and define, yeah. but they all seem to keen or scream, and they're associated with death and death omens. Death and some sort of auditory stimulus are pretty much the inevitable thing. Even when you go to the other variations that you might you'd find over in like Brittany, Wales, or more so Scotland, because they have the, the washerwoman by the board. Yeah, you, you that, hear her. You hear her. You all like sometimes you can see her, but a lot of places say you you will only ever hear her, you never see her. And it's all a lot and those places it said that if you do see her, it's incredibly bad luck. And for those who don't know, what is keening? So keening was the ritual art of, gr of grieving at a funeral or just grieving for loved ones. It comes from one of Ireland's many, many, many superstitions surrounding death. Because as with most cultures in the world, Mika became a little bit obsessed with death. And to keening, well, it's, the superstition comes from the idea that if you showed too much grief, at the passing of a loved one, that grief could tempt the soul to stay on earth for whatever reason, like not want to, just the, the emotional outpouring somehow ties them there. So you have to maintain a bit of a stiff upper lip and do nothing. Just have the wake, have your party, have your drink. And to get away with, show, not, uh, to express your grief, you then have to hire somebody else to do it for you, which is where the keening women come in. Hmm. They were not... Oh, they weren't often officially given money. It wasn't, I'm giving you this money, you're going to show up and keen for my loved one. It was, uh, well, I would like you to show up. And then when they show up, they'll do their keening. And when they're leaving, they go, well, thank you so much for showing up. Here's this little gift. Couldn't, you can't, like when you're dealing with most magical things, payment would almost dissolve the magic that's going on. And... I've heard that it, it comes from like the old lamenting tradition and sort of the bardic laments. If you have, there's a really, really good example of keening in one of my favorite movies. Oh. 
The Lord of the Rings. Oh. In the extended edition of The Two Towers, which I have watched more than seven times, wow. uh, there is an extended scene where Eowyn's cousin, I believe, uh, is being laid to rest. And Eowyn then keens in Old English, Anglo-Saxon. Oh. Uh, it's kind of low, low gutturals, really emotional, heavy singing. Yeah. And it's it's almost like proper keening is almost a mix between song, wailing, despair. Yeah. It's very over the top, almost pantomime-esque. They often will wear rags, they'll let their hair loose and wild, which at the time was a very, very risky thing because they, those are still the times when if you showed up to church without a headscarf covering your hair, you were the worst sinful strumpet in the village. <laughs> Course. So you had your hair loose and wild, you had your rags, you'd be tearing at your hair, tearing at the rags, all while screaming out semi-melodically mm. in Irish about how great the person was, how it's a terrible loss that they're gone, how horrific everyone feels because they're gone, all while everyone else is just there stony-faced because they, they can't. So it's a mix of honouring the life that's gone and giving a cathartic release to the grief. Yeah, I think like the, the famous Irish wake where we celebra- celebrate the person's life after their death is, pre- is the, the whole celebration of the life. It's the, isn't it great? We'll honour them, we'll, think, we'll remember the good times with them. And then the keening is the moment that you really let yourself go into the loss of the situation and hopefully it helps you process that and move on. And it was mostly women who did the keeners. Like the professional think, keeners seem to have all been women. As far as I know, it is an exclusively female task, which is probably quite connected to the banshee. Yeah, it's a lot, same with like the laying out of the body and the washing of the body. It was generally women brought you into the world and women pushed exactly. you out of the world. Yeah, you're like that, that sort of symmetry. Just it, it feels nice, feels natural. So, mm. but... One of the interesting things about it as well is the Catholic Church never, ever approved of it, tried to stamp it out as hard as they could. Which, well, it's very pagan. Well, that's that's the thing. It's pointing to the fact that it is a very, very old tradition. You find similar traditions in various cultures throughout the world. And it's it's pretty much definitely a pre-Christian survival yeah. that has has made it pretty much up into the modern day because there were reports of professional keeners right up to the 1950s. Yeah, I think one of the last sort of great keening laments was composed by Daniel O'Connell's aunt mm-hmm. or her husband. I think her husband was O'Leary. It was someone kind of in the Daniel O'Connell circle, though. Yeah, I I will I will put this in later as a as a footnote, <laughs> but she she composed the last great Keening mm. lament, and she sort of composed three versions of it, mm. because there was the on the spot version when she first found her husband's body, because the death was really like something out of a melodrama. He was riding mm. on his horse and he was shot, Ooh. and he fell off the horse, and the horse ran back to the house covered in blood, and she saw the ho- the blood covered horse running up and jumped onto it, and the horse took her to the body. Yeah, Ooh. harsh. Yeah, really fits with the whole sort of romantic Irish revolutionary thing. Oh, of course. So then she composed the uh, the lament of the first lament, he's gone. Mm. And then sort of at the wake, there was sort of almost a duologue lament mm. with her and his sister. Mm. Each sort of almost competing to be chief mourner. And then <laughs> later there was the, the refined version 
of the mm. lament. And here is Emily with the promised footnote. The poetess in question was Evelyn Dove Niconel, or Eileen O'Connell, as she is more commonly known, and as is much easier to spell. And I was right. She was married to O'Leary. She was married to Art O'Leary. But that is O'Leary spelt L-A-O-G-H-A-I-R-E. Because, as I have said before, Irish spelling is there to confuse people. There is another O'Leary who was a Fenian revolutionary, but he spelt his name slightly differently. Eileen O'Connell's Lament for Art O'Leary is considered to be one of the greatest poems composed in either England or Ireland during the 18th century. And now, back to the Banshees. Um, but the sort of the first lament in Ireland, or at least the claimed first lament in Ireland, was by Bridget. It was. And I think we've told this story ages ago, possibly on the Bridget episode. Uh, she she composed the first lament for her son when he died. Ah, uh, Ruban. Yeah, in the forge. Terribly tragic one, that one. Yeah, it, it, it's all about civil war and... Um, how even if you're immortal gods, people are still idiots. Pretty much. And just no matter what happens in war, children will die and mothers will grieve. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sad story. But the Banshee Keens, again, uh-huh. sorry, get, getting back to our topic. <laughs> uh, and that she's very much lament associated with the death, with warning of death. Mm. And in sort of my head canon, she has three forms, uh, which is the, the woman combing her hair, who's generally mm-hmm. the young woman, uh, the woman washing at the ford, and then the keener, the lamenter, yeah. who's often a crone. And that's how I would often explain it when I was talking about banshees. But the thing is, there's sort of more than that. And sometimes they're fairies, and sometimes they're humans, and sometimes they're ghosts. It, no one seems to be able to settle on it, I find, which I find very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's wonderfully elusive and spooky. But you have a story that in some versions, is the first Banshee story. Yes. So this is, going back to the earlier condo, is the, it's the story I told back for Culture Night three years, two years ago now? What is time? It was a time before now. And it claims to be the first ever Banshee. And I'm just going to do the usual intro for this, mm-hmm. because it, it answers some interesting questions about the Banshee. Because as you were saying, it, she comes in many different forms, and literally the word it is, Banshee is female fairy. Yeah. Some people will say, oh, it could they, that they're missing a father and it's actually Vaughn, as in white fairy, if that's a mistranslation. And others will say that actually fairy, she, it just means otherworldly. So yeah. she is a spirit of some sort, which could range from anything being ghost to fairy. She could be anything of that in anything in between. Mm. And it could be different depending on who you're listening to, different on the story. It could even be different between the banshees because some of the most famous named banshees are all associated with the big noble families of Ireland. The oldest references we have to the Banshees are all talking about them being in relation to the five great houses, being the O'Neills, I think the O'Tools, and definitely the O'Briens. Because for those that don't know, the O'Briens were one of the royal families of Ireland and produced one of the great Irish high kings, Brian Boru. The only high king who actually ever did anything in Ireland. 
And for those who don't know Brian Baru, he was a, originally the second son of the king of, of a small region in Munster called Dalglesh, who, through, after the death of his brother, was waging a guerrilla war against both the ruling family of Munster, the Onach, and the Vikings of Limerick, till eventually he got control of the kingdom of Ulster, uh, of uh, Munster, and then slowly but surely took over Connacht, took over Leinster, took over Ulster, and finally got himself declared High King. He subjugated the Vikings of Limerick, Wexford, Cork, and Dublin. But rather importantly, he took complete control of Limerick and they went completely over to him. But Dublin and Leinster were always a bit of an issue. And eventually the King of Dublin, King Sithric, allied with Mailmore, I think it was Mailmore of Leinster, to rebel against him in and around 1014 AD. Obviously, this wasn't going to stand. So King Brian Baru gathered his army and he led them to Dublin to attack the Vikings at Clontarf. The reason for Clontarf is a huge Viking force had come in from both the Outer Hebrides and the Isle of Man, bringing with them various Norse mercenaries. They all landed in the bay with, of Clontarf. And anyone familiar with Clontarf now, there was, very, there was not nearly as much land as there is now. There was a huge land reclamation at, done in the 70s and 80s. So you have to imagine the area of Clontarf, just it's pretty much completely a bay of water, hills above it. And Brian brings up his army, camps below the hills, so he'll have high ground the next day and lets night fall. Campfires come up, little twinkling lights all around. And everyone just settles down and starts chatting about what's going to happen the next day. It's the quiet before the storm. And around one particular campfire, we meet one of King Brian Baru's greatest generals, Dunling O'Hartigan. He's sitting at the fire. Just opposite him is his young son, Mira, and the son of the High King, Turlock. And all three of them are talking about the next day. Dunling is sitting back. He's just listening to what the young men are saying. They're very nervous. Rumours have been spreading throughout the war camp that their force is outnumbered three to one, that the Vikings have been bringing in giants and other mythical beings to help them fight on their side. But then a little hush descends, and Dunling notices that there's something watching them just outside the light of the fire. And then the thing speaks. Dunling, voice says. Dunling O'Hardigan. You know, Dunning leaps up, he's reaching for his sword and goes, who calls me? And then the voice softly whispers, has it been so long, Dunling? It is I, it is Avel. Avel, he says, I, I know you not. And a soft whimper escaped to her. Has it been so long, Dunling? I've never forgotten you. Do you not remember when we lay together above the slopes of Loch Derg all those years ago? I am a banshee, a woman of the fairy. And though I come to your fire tonight, warn your king of his death on the morrow, still I come to your fire first so that I may spare your life. And at that point, it all comes back to him. He remembers the time he'd spent with her all those years ago. And then she steps forward. The light finally spreads on her. She's wearing a long emerald cloak. Her face is just as perfect and beautiful as it was all those years ago. She hasn't even aged a single day. Come, he says, tell me what you will. 
What do you want from me? And so Eva starts to speak. Dunling, tomorrow your king will die on the field of battle. But that need not be your fate. The she have agreed to grant you and your son 200 years of life on this earth. But you must not fight tomorrow. If you fight, you will surely die. And I would not have that done me. Well, he weighs up his options. He thinks it over. Before him, he has the chance to survive. And his son, his young son, is barely old enough to be a man. He's not sure he can play with his life. He's not sure he can play with his son's life. But he's sworn an oath. He was, he's been Brian's general for years. He's been with him since the early days in Munster. He helped him tame Leinster the first time. So he asks her, tell me this, Banshee, if you have the gift of prophecy, will we be victorious tomorrow? She looks at him with sad, tired eyes. Yes, she said, but if you fight, you will not see the victory. He looks at his son. He looks at Brian's son. And finally, shakes his head. I have sworn an oath. I would not break that oath to live till the end of days as a coward, for I would rather die on the, in a day on the field of battle. Go now, give Brian your prophecy. And with that, she was gone, blown away like smoke on the wind. And shortly after, Dunling went to King Brian's tent. He found the old king looking shaken. Dunling, he says. I, you thought I was the banshee returned to give you further gifts of prophecy. How did you, said Brian, but then he smiled. She came to see you too. Mm. She has told me that I will die tomorrow, but that will, my forces will see a great victory. Tell me, Dunling, what did she want to tell you? At this point, Dunling couldn't even meet his king's eyes. She offered me eternal life if I should refuse to fight for you tomorrow. A noble offer said Brian. What did you say? At this point, Dunning walked forward, knelt before his king, grasping his hand. I have sworn an oath to you, my king. My sword, my hand, and my life are yours, have always been yours, and will be yours until I draw my last breath. At that point, Dunning felt something wet falling on the top of his head. And he looked up to see tears streaming from his king's eyes. Truly, Dunning, with men such as you by my side, I will die a blessed life. The next morning, it was Good Friday in 1014 AD, and the hills above Clontarf were now littered with the Irish soldiers. Crossed them from them with the Norse force assembling beside their ships. Calm kind of descended over the battlefield in an eerie silence as the two armies squared up and watched each other. And then suddenly, the Viking war horns blared, from, and that was met by a cry from the Irish troops. They rushed forward, and it was a long, red, and butchering day. By the time the sun set that evening, the battlefield was thick with black corpses and carrion crows who had come to feast. And among the dead, there moved a woman, wrapped up in an emerald green cloak. She was looking for something, constantly looking. Until she saw him, she pulled his body out from a heap of corpses held his battered head in her hands as Dunling's cold, lifeless eyes stared back at her. Her lip began to tremble, and then she screamed. Ten.
terrible ear-splitting scream that sent the crows flying for miles. She clutched him to herself and swayed back and forth, screaming, till the sun rose the next day when she vanished, returning to her home above Loch Derg, where it's said you can hear the cries of the first banshee to this day. Which I've always thought is a nice, light-hearted romp through Irish history. It, it does touch on, as well, a lot of themes with the stories of the fairies. Yes. Yeah. They, they don't age. They're like mortal lovers. They wear green. And they hang around hills near lakes. Yeah. Also very strong emotions. As, as much as I dislike the man, uh, Yeats kind of had it right there, where they experience uh, extreme uninhibited emotions. Mm. They are either incredibly furious or incredibly happy or completely despairing. They don't do half ways when it comes to emotional reactions. Well, a lot of them are artists and poets and things, so they, you know, exactly. they need to put on a bit of a show. Yeah. The story of how the O'Brien family got its banshee. Yes. And that banshee is, she is an actual fairy woman. She's an actual fairy queen. Oh, yeah. Doesn't she have like 25 lesser banshees that follow her around? There were supposedly a whole court of banshees who would follow her around, along with the other, I think it was the, the five major banshee queens. Uh, she's of the Loch Derg of the Connacht variety, not the one up in Donegal where the gate to hell in Ireland is. And she's very much so associated with the O'Brien family. And one of the things I love about folklore and mythology, there's another version of that story where Dunling is actually being a coward and wanting to flee from, and trying to run away from the battle. And she shows up and in classic Irish mammy fashion starts <laughs> scolding him, giving out to him, going, what will the neighbours say if you run off? What will they do if you don't show up at the battle? Sure, you have to go to the battle tomorrow, Dunning, otherwise we'll never live it down. And she basically shapes him back into the fight. I love that there are two completely different versions of the story. Mm-hmm. And actually, I found a different version of the O'Neill Banshee, totally no. different. So I'm not... I keep saying O'Neill because I normally tell the story of the O'Neill Banshee, but the O'Brien Banshee. I found it through the um, the Feminist Folklore Podcast, one of their, Ooh. yeah, in their back catalogue. Uh, and it comes from the memoir of Lady Fanshawe. Yeah. Which is Fancy. a, which when I first heard the name, I thought, isn't that a name that's made up in an Oscar Wilde play? But <laughs> no, she was, she was a, a woman, she was a writer, uh, a royalist and was living through the English Civil War, when it was mm. not a great time to be a royalist in England. Uh, so she and her husband uh, left England and travelled around Europe, writing memoirs. She wrote the first, one of the first cookbooks in Europe to contain a recipe for ice cream. Oh, wow. So that's one of her main claims to fame. But when she and her husband were staying in Ireland, mm. going from various friends' castles to manors to castles, they were staying with the O'Brien family in one of their big fancy castles. And when they arrived late, they were shown into the finest of the bedchambers. Of course, the finest bedchamber kept for guests. And it was it was a dark, cold night. And so Lady Fanshawe, Anne and her husband, Richard, soon lay down to sleep. But in the middle of the night, she was awoken by something. And she she couldn't quite put her finger on what it was. It was probably just a strange house, strange noises. 
but something made her want to get out of the bed. And so she got out, she wrapped a shawl around herself to keep out the chill. The fire had died down, it was barely glowing. And she saw at the window a face, a face so pale it could have been the face of the moon surrounded by ragged red hair and she went closer and th there was no way that there could be someone at the window they were they were up too high and when this face saw her the mouth opened and it began to scream and wail and as soon as she turned to wake her husband to ask him could he see this too the face was gone but Lady Fanshawe slept no more that night sitting up watching the window to see will the face return. In the morning, at breakfast, she came down having not slept at all, and she saw that her hostess as well had dark circles under her eyes, and Lady O'Brien apologised for not being the best company this morning. You see, she had been up all night. A cousin of hers, whom she was very close to, had been taken ill. She had spent the night with him and he had died in her arms. And then she turned to her guests and apologised. She hadn't thought anyone in the family was sick. If she had, she would never have put them in that room. For long ago, one of her ancestors who owned this castle had been infatuated by a maid, had got the maid pregnant and then pushed her out of that very window. And since that day, any time a member of the family was about to die, the ghost of the murdered maid, the banshee would appear and would scream. And so Lady Fanshawe and her husband left quite quickly. Naturally. <laughs> so that's a that's a very different banshee story. It is, but it does. <clears throat> it ties in nicely to, well, not so much ties in, but it reminds me of something about the banshee is about who can actually hear her. Because mm. very, very frequently, in a lot of pop cultural depictions, you kind of, you hear the banshee and she's warning you of your impending death. So you hear the banshee like, well, that's my nail knob then. Whereas in the folk tradition, very often it's not, you don't hear the banshee screaming for you. Your family hears it mm. pretty much as or after you die. Yeah, so like it's, a warning. That's the thing. It's not just, it's not just a, a prophetic, you need to watch yourself because you're about to pass. It's also about letting the family know what has happened to them. And one of the interesting things I've always taken with the Banshee is that there's been reports that people who, because Ireland is a country of emigration, we yeah. send our people all over the globe. And that one of the, one of the theories of why the Banshee legend has persisted so long is it's very, very, very comforting. If you've got a relative, say your, say your daughter, she's emigrated off to Australia and that could mean if you want to get a letter from her, that's going to be six months on, on the boat back to you. So if you want to actually get fast news, it's not going to happen, except for the Banshee. So yep. if they pass, you hear the Banshee. Yes, it's awful that they have died, but you but at you least know. know, and you get some comfort from that. Yeah. And there's a big thing, Irish people, we travel, well, we don't anymore because you know, we're only allowed to have six people at a funeral and we're not allowed to leave the county, but we do travel for funerals. And like, I have, particularly on my dad's side of the family, I have loads of cousins who I've only ever met at funerals. Yeah. Because everyone, everyone goes to the funeral. You have to. It's the big social event of the year. And actually, uh, 
banshees follow oh like the families who have banshees are the o's and the max and yeah. and sort of because we're in highland sort of we're, we're all i don't know how the banshee if it's only the people with that surname or if it's all descendants but if it's all descendants then pretty much everyone has multiple banshees at this stage yeah uh, I was going to say, both sides of my family are supposedly meant to have a banshee, even though I know for a fact, because uh, you were saying there, the, the O's and the Max, that comes from a, I believe it was a poem, in around the Civil War, shortly after the uh, Tudor plantations, where they talk about if only O's and Max have a banshee. I can't remember the rhyme at the moment. And the Kavanaghs, for some reason. Um, the Kavanaghs were... Also, an old Irish, old yeah. Irish family. But they, they they just buck the naming tradition. Yeah, but the it, the fun thing is, it only you can only trace the idea of being o, of O or Mac to shortly after the plantation period, because it's basically us pissing all over our banshee, going, "It's ours. You don't have one. It's <laughs> our thing." Even though they let and they do the whole oh, Irish O's or Macs despite the fact that they also list 90% of the Anglo-Normans who came over in the original conquest of Ireland. Well, that's because those guys, they became more Irish than the Irish. Yeah, well, the, Fitz, the Fitzgeralds pretty much married into a banshee. <laughs> uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't stand not having one. Fitzmaurice's as well. Uh, but lots, lots of them, they just, they just start having banshees all of a sudden. It's, it's you you have to have as, a banshee. Same as my mother's side of the family. Um, we're... My mum is Jordan, which comes, which comes from, uh, I believe, the Jordan, which was a crusader, mm. actually a crusader family named after the Jordan the river. river, who came over in the, whichever wave of, in, of uh, early invasions where they planned, where they were in Offaly. I just know they settled around Offaly in the early days. But they supposedly have a banshee, even though they're very traceably Anglo-Norman originally. And Odin's, you do have a banshee because we've actually got quite an ancient lineage. Ooh. I found a listed scholar from the Odin family called, Ma uh, I think it was Maelmore Odin. That's a name that needs to come back into fashion. It's a great name. And uh, Mill Shocklin, great name. But he, he was a historian and writer from 1081 AD, I think is when he died. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't trace my family back that far. We can't provably make the connection, unfortunately, because all the lovely records we had were blown up. Yeah, uh, our during during our civil war, not the English one, in sort of the nineteen twenties, we accidentally blew up the customs house that contained all of the records. So uh, things get a bit confusing. Which has led to what the genealogists call the uh, 1800 wall, where in Ireland, if you, you, it's relatively easy to get back to kind of anywhere in the 19th century. It's really, really difficult to get back to the 18th century if yeah. you're Catholic. If yeah. you can break that, you're actually pretty good. But if you, you often get muddled around the middle there. Which was the same for, because my sister's quite into genealogy and she's managed to trace us back almost to breaking the barrier. We've got the tree spreading out in all directions, but we just can't get back that little bit further. And I just know for a fact that if we could, there are so many linking, like we just need to link up with one other well established genealogy and we just can't. Yeah. 
But on funerals, I actually have a real life banshee story to do with funerals. Do tell. Because as you mentioned, like you will travel for a funeral. So a couple of years ago, um, actually shortly after the culture night thing. Oh, everything's um, connected. My my longtime girlfriend and partner, Lauren, sadly her grandmother passed and her grandmother lived up in Longford. So... Unfortunately, we were both in college at the time. She had to travel up. She missed college. I had work the next day. So I couldn't go up with her on that on, on the day itself. I went to work. And when work was finished, I got on the coach and went up to Longford. And I, we then went back to the house, introductions to all the family, all the cousins, because they'd come from all over. They'd come from France. They'd come from Scotland. One came from America. And meeting the family, a lot of them for the first time. And as it's an Irish funeral, drinks were had. And flash forward in the evening to three o'clock in the morning. I have gotten to know the family rather well at this stage. Currently, I am outside the back garden sitting opposite uh, one of her cousins. It gets very tricky, but older cousin, this man in his early to mid forties, another cousin of hers who definitely just is a cousin. Uh, Me and him sitting beside each other, talking to him. We're just joking, laughing about something, having, having a few drinks. And then suddenly just, you know, the weird dip in conversation, there's a little bit of quiet. And then suddenly, uh, his name's Justin, the guy in the 40s, looks at me and the other guy, Matthew, and just goes, you know, we heard the banshee screaming for her the day before she passed. Ooh. And that, that's pretty much just the extent of the story. But the thing that really struck me was there, there was belief in what he said. Like, there was genuine belief. Like, Whatever your thoughts and feelings on it, he genuinely believed he had heard the banshee screaming for his, for his uh, great auntie. And I just love that. Yeah. Like 2017 in Ireland, you can still find someone who genuinely feels they heard the banshee screaming. Because it, it was the way he said it. It was that little, that little look in the eye that goes, yeah. you might not believe me. I'm not even really 100% I believe myself. But I sadly have no personal banshee stories, uh, which is annoying because I've got O'Donnells on both sides of the family. Uh, My grandmother, her maiden name was O'Donnell on my dad's side. And then my great, great grandmother, I might be missing a great there, was also an O'Donnell. But uh, on the traveling for a funeral, a slightly lighter, more, you know, sweet story about traveling for funerals with no banshees uh she was o'donnell hmm. and my, she eventually would marry uh big tom freeman and big tom freeman was from minnesota ah. uh it's family they, they were originally irish they moved over to minnesota um i don't know what they did over there but they did quite well because when there was news that someone in the family was reaching their end they were able to send someone back as the representative to go to the funeral. So Big Tom, who was like six foot six, uh, went back to the funeral and 
they thought, you know, well, you might as well stay for a bit and you know, we'll show you the sights. And someone took him to the RDS hmm. uh, to see the horse show. And at the, yeah, and at the horse show, he met Mary O'Donnell. And family lore says that that very night he wrote a letter saying, I've fallen in love. I'm not coming back. Ah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, see funerals bringing funerals people bring together. People together, but uh, n- no sign of the O'Donnell banshee. She might have been busy. Maybe I mean that there there were a lot of them. See that that's also the thing is, despite the fact that Ireland has a tiny population, the Irish population around the globe is so massive, and if you go back to the original book texts. There's only five banshees. I know. They're terribly overworked and very stressed. Well, actually, that might explain the O'Neill banshee story, which is the one I normally tell, Mm. which uh, could be seen as a banshee recruitment story. (laughs) Go on. So the story, it takes place long, long ago in the time of myths and legends, kings and monsters. And it involves a man who, unsurprisingly, was called O'Neill, and he was Lord O'Neill. He was the chieftain of the clan, and a very practical man. He believed in this world, not the next world. He had no time for superstitions or any of that nonsense. But on his land was a fairy hill, and growing on the fairy hill was a hawthorn tree. Now, as we all know, there are certain places, certain hills, certain trees even, that are considered to be very special to the fairies. You don't mess with these places. No. No. But O'Neill, this was good land. This was good, fertile land. He, he could be growing crops there, he could be grazing cattle, and yet anytime he'd ask one of his men to go do something with that hill, they go, oh, well, um, you, you know I would, but, you know, the fairies. And one day O'Neill had, he just had it up to here with this, so he picked up his axe, marched out to the hill, and chopped the tree down himself. Now, of course, as soon as he did this, everyone began to whisper, because, well, they knew it wouldn't be long. They knew the fairies would be coming. They'd be looking for revenge. And that very night, the fairies gathered beneath that hill. They began to plot, to scheme. O'Neill had taken from them. He'd struck at their heart. So it was only right they did the same thing to him. But what should they take? What would be of equal value? One of them suggested his cows. I mean, O'Neill's wealth was in his cattle. They should make so that all the cows grew sick and died. That would teach him not to mess with the fairies. But another laughed because cows, they got sick all the time. No, this had to be, this had to be personal. They should take his strength. They should turn him into an old withered man before his time. That would teach him not to mess with the fairies. But the eldest, and the cruelest of the fairies. Well, they had another idea. You see, the thing O'Neill valued most, it wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his great strength. It was his daughter, Eileen. 
You see, O'Neill, he had many sons, but he only had one daughter. She was the joy of his heart. She was the apple of his eye. And so she was what the fairies took. That night when all slept, they began to play sweet, enchanted music. And Eileen O'Neill rose up in her sleep, walked out of her father's castle towards the fairy hill. The fairies, they opened it up and they took Eileen deep down below the earth into their world. She was their prisoner, their captive. And in the morning when O'Neill woke up, well, no one had seen Eileen. He searched the castle, top to bottom, not a sign of her. He called for his men, his horse. He began making a great search of all of his lands, but no one had seen sight nor sound of Eileen. And so slowly, O'Neill began to listen to the whispers and began to believe, to believe that there are more things in this world than man can dream of, to believe that there, there just might, just might be such things as the fairies and that they might have his daughter. So O'Neill began to go to every fairy hill, every fairy well, every tree, and he begged and pleaded with the fairies to please tell him where was Eileen? And the fairies, well, they replied. They always gave him the same answer, though. They always told him that Eileen O'Neill slept below the earth. Now, O'Neill took this to mean that the fairies had killed his daughter. They had buried her somewhere and they, they wouldn't even tell him where the grave was so he could mourn properly. He fell into a deep despair, but if he'd been listening to the old stories, he would have known the fairy world is below the earth. And that's where Eileen was. She lived with the fairies for many years. They, well, they treated her kindly enough, but she was still a prisoner. And every day she would go to them and beg, plead to be allowed to go back, to be allowed to return to the mortal world, to, to see her friends, to see her family again, even if it was only for one day. And eventually, the fairies agreed. Eileen O'Neill could return to the mortal world for one day. And the day the fairies chose? The day that Lord O'Neill lay on his deathbed. Eileen, she got to see her father again. Only to watch him die. And when Eileen saw her father die, something, something inside her began to change. She began to let out a great keening wail, a wail that echoed all through this world and the next world. And she began to change. Her hair became white. Her skin turned translucent so you could see the bones beneath. She was no longer a mortal woman. She had become a creature that had one foot in this world and one foot in the next. She'd become a banshee. And there are many reasons given as to why. Some people say the O'Neills, well, you know, they always had a bit of the old fairy blood in them. Others, they say that something magical was awakened in Eileen. I think, though, it was the fairies. I think they heard her cry, and they were so moved by her grief that they decided to grant her power, to follow her bloodline wherever it may go. And when one of her family was in danger. 
when one of the O'Neills was facing death, she could find them and she would warn them. Some of them still hear her today, but mortals aren't that good at listening. They don't hear Eileen, and if they do hear her, they don't understand. They fear the cry of the banshee. They claim it will bring them death. But she's trying to warn them. They're her family, after all. And if she can save one of them, just one, well, then maybe her soul will finally be able to rest. But till that day... Eileen remains a banshee, and she weeps, and she wails. That's wonderfully tragic. Yeah, ages since I told that story. Felt good to tell it again. There's nothing like a good banshee story. No, though, uh, if you're like a fan of sort of cryptid searching, the banshee may just be a barn owl. Yep. Every sort of supernatural sighting thing, there's always one theory that it could just be a barn owl. Or a fox in heat. Indeed. They are terrifying. Yeah, we, uh, I live near a, a rugby pitch and there's some foxes there. And when you hear them screaming, it's it sounds like a child is being murdered. Yeah. And then my dogs go mad. Oh, yeah. Like back when I used to live in Dean's Grange, You'd hear them every single night. They are littering the streets in that area. Mm. And it is like if, if you the first time you hear it, it just you don't think any creature can actually make that no. noise. It's so terrifying. They've uh, in the sort of the early days of the lockdown, they were they were all over the place. Yeah. Uh, Taking back control. Yeah. Well, I heard sort of this weird noise and I couldn't work out what it was. So I looked out the window one night and there was there was a like a an adolescent fox. Oh. Like a cub who was sort of out for his first time. And he was standing at the traffic lights, just yowling. Because <laughs> he, 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 he clearly sort of wandered off a bit too far for his parents and was sort of wondering, are they going to come and get me? <laughs> I remember the last day I was officially in work when I was coming home. Um, I had just crossed over at the Heineken Tower and was turning down towards Tara Street. And you know the next the next street on from yeah. the Hannigan Tower. As I was walking down, not many people around because the lockdown was pretty much coming into effect yeah. in a few days. And I just saw bold as brass fox crossing the road from the Liffey uh, right in front of me, just kind of looked at me for a second and decided I wasn't worth his time, just kept walking calm as day right down the middle of the road. I know it's so weird seeing them in the city centre because yeah. I know like urban foxes, but they're normally a little bit further out. But given no, that like the suburbs, you expect to see foxes. Yeah. They're everywhere. You just don't expect them to be in the heart of the city centre. But they they were saying, hey, there's no cars. Let's go see yeah. what's in these bins. Yeah. And now we've kicked them out again. Uh, they're going to be coming back. Oh, they will. And the pigeons. It's when the foxes and the pigeons team up. That's when we need to worry. We've got very far off banshees. <laughs> uh, but this always happens. Actually, have you been able to find any banshee bones? Banshee bones? Not in many years, unfortunately. Oh, for those who don't know, banshee bones are a type of crisp. And I hadn't... A crisp is what Americans call a chip. chip. Yeah. Potato-y thing. Potato-y thing yeah. that goes crunch. Uh, they were a crisp. I had never tried them. 
I had been told about them and told that they were discontinued. And then news broke that Tato had brought back the Banshee Bones. This news <laughs> broke sort of late September that they were coming back for Halloween. And I have been looking everywhere and I cannot find the Banshee Bones. They're probably not fully in distribution yet. I'd say they're probably waiting till like second week in October to Maybe. build up the hype. Maybe. I, I have no idea what they're like. I don't know if they're nice, but I just know I have to, at some stage in my life, try some Banshee Bones. But I should probably try them as well because I, I do remember them being in the store. I just never bothered to buy them because I'm not adventurous when it comes to crisps. <laughs> do you know where the, the Banshee's comb thing comes from? Now, I'm not actually sure where the whole comb thing fits in. Like, I've, I've, heard, I've heard about the comb from the early days of reading about the Banshee. Yeah. But I can't find like a lot of the stuff, like say the washing of the clothes by the Ford or the screw or the keening, a lot of that you can trace back to earlier figures. Like there's a lot of talk about what the hell is the Banshee's relationship with the Morrigan. I know. It's are they the same thing? Are they lesser forms? <laughs> are they I've always kind of had it in my head that the Banshee was pr- kind of like the, the Banshee was to the Morrigan what the Valkyries were to Odin sort of thing. Actually, I was reading an article recently comparing uh, Banshees and Valkyries and also a lot of the stuff about Odin and the Morrigan. They are quite similar. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're, both, they're both magic prophets. And they both like ravens. They do both very much so like ravens. Which is again another another connect. I think the Banshee is also somewhat connected to ravens. I suppose they're a death omen as well. They're a death omen, but also the Banshee can take a couple of specific animal forms. I believe it was kind of like the like the Grim. It's either a hare or a crow of some variety. Something black. Something black. Which is which... odd because the Banshee is normally dressed in white. Often dressed in white, but or red. Or red, which again brings back the connection to... The Morrigan. The Morrigan. And I I personally feel that the red is probably the older tradition because white as an association with death isn't particularly prevalent in an Irish culture. Because white vaguely translucent skin was actually well, considered a sign of great beauty in Ireland because well, we're, I mean, all we're all pasty white. We're all pasty, lacking in vitamin D. Mm-hmm. We so all look slightly not, we all look slightly dead. We do all look slightly dead. It's probably why we like having the banshee around. Well sorry, I, I say we all the, not, not well, everyone who's Irish and in Ireland is is a is a pasty faced lacking in melanin person. Not everyone. Not everyone by any stretch, but like I, I myself come from the slightly tanned Irish stock, meaning that I probably have some relations in Spain because of the invasion, because of the battle can sail. Or the Milesians. Or the Milesians. Or going all the way back to Cesar. She was from Syria. First she was from Syria. Come to Ireland. Parthalon was from Greece. Yeah. But the comb. Back to the comb. <laughs> We've got very off topic. What I do know about the comb is you're not meant to touch it. Yeah, that's the only thing I really know. She combs her hair, don't touch it if she leaves it behind. Yeah, because as, as you're saying, frequently the younger version of the Banshee is met while she's combing her incredibly long hair. Well, uh, how I long believe... is incredibly long? I'm, one of the accounts, I am stretching out my hair. 
It's about as Longer, long as my arm. Because one of the accounts has her standing on one of those wall, like one of those walls beside the country roads, yeah. which are usually like about four foot, yeah. three foot, four They're foot tall. Enough, yeah. She's up there standing on it with her head slightly to the side, hair long flowing out and it's reaching down to the ground. And wow. she's comb, slowly combing the locks. That would take forever. And I think it, I think it's, it's either in a completely different story or that I Frankenstein together, <laughs> or it is in that story where a man it kind of sees the one, sees, a, I think it was Michal, sees a woman there combing her hair on the, on the side of the road, kind of peck, and he's, he's going to the pub. Of course. Sees her combing her hair, doesn't really like, goes, oh, that's a bit weird. Moves to the side of, to the other side of the road, keeps walking. And when he's coming back from the pub, he notices, and he's walking back that way, he notices a little glint on the ground and he goes up and he sees that there's a little comb and it's solid silver. So instantly he's going, solid silver, that'll cover my, that'll cover my drinking for tonight and maybe even for tomorrow. Picks up the comb, puts it in his pocket and goes off merrily home. But as soon as he gets home, uh, everything just feels really off and weird. And then he hears a voice screaming in the distance. And then nothing. And then another scream, and this time it's closer. And then nothing. And then he hears something scratching at his window. Just a little scratch. And a little louder. And then a little louder. So he goes up to the window. And then he sees a face, an old ghostly face staring out of the window. And just as he meets her eyes, she just screams. He bolts back from the window, falls over himself and knocks himself out. The next night happens again. It's fine for the whole day, but as soon as the sun sets, here's the long scratch at the window and the screaming starts. No matter what he does, he can't drown out the scream. He has his pillows on his ears. He's hiding under the table. So the next day, when the sun rises and it's safe, he immediately goes off to the local priest, because that's who you ask to sort out supernatural stuff for you. And the local priest tells him that, well, you shouldn't be even talking about fairies because they don't exist. However, this is what you need to do to get rid of this very real banshee who is haunting you. You've stolen her comb. You need to give her that comb back. If you do not give it back, she will not let you rest until the day you die and will claim your soul for hell. That's probably just the priest's perspective on it, but anyway. And he, tell, he tells me, Hall, to make sure he gives the comb back to the banshee tonight. But very crucially, he must not touch the banshee's flesh. He must make sure to hand the comb to her by, only by holding out iron tongs from the fire. So he decides, well, may as well give it a go. He goes back, waits for the evening, and when the banshee comes back with the evening and starts scratching at his window, goes to the fire, he takes out the tongs, he picks up the comb, and he very gingerly just opens the top flap of the window and stretches the comb out by, with the tongs. And he just feels a jerk of the tongs, rush of something running away. And then his hand is on fire. 
he drops the tongs and he's already got big white welt on his hand as the burn is springing up instantly. It's already a blister and it's burst. He then looks down and sees what's left of the tongs melted, slowly smoking on the ground in front of him. So thankfully he used the tongs and not his hand to hand back the comb. Mm. Probably not a good idea to be using iron to give her back the tongs. I think that is part of the re- is that it is a defense against her. I suppose. And it's the only thing that can right, I was make thinking. sure he doesn't get harmed. But, I was thinking banshee, that. but that is, you did point it out that the banshee is frequently not mentioned as being weak to iron. Mm. Like she, like, not, not specifically saying that she's immune to it compared to any of the other fairies, but I find it interesting that the iron connection doesn't come up nearly as much, which could lead credence to the idea that she's not actually a fairy Good. and is more the ancestor spirit variety yeah or if you go to the scottish tradition with uh the the washerwoman she's a sort of what what's the death version of a midwife oh and it, she's sure. she was be she was meant to be doing the laying out and she yeah. she she skipped on some of the washing things and so her soul is condemned to to make sure she does it right i can't remember it properly unfortunately but there is another washerwoman at the forward story young scottish guy heading home crosses over a bridge and from underneath the bridge he just hears these loud quacking sounds quack 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 so he goes down to investigate and he sees these three women with these long long white sheets that they're one of them's dipping it into the river and then pulling it back up, scrunching it, hands it over to the next one, she rings it out, rings it out, and then she hands it on to the third, who gets it out, and the machine just starts smacking it off the rocks beside the river. And because he's very intelligent, he decides to investigate. He goes a bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer, until they spot him. At once, they all three look at him, and the first one, takes the sheet and puts it in the water. She then hands it to the second. The second rings it out and hands it to the third, all while maintaining eye contact with him. The third, then one whack, two whack, and on the third, whacks it right towards him. Wraps him up, wraps him up, wraps him up. And the next day, his body was found, dead as a doornail, pale as snow, not a breath of life in them anymore. Now, unfortunately, the story is much better when if, in the full version, but if you get a chance, try and find it. I think it's one of Bob Kern's. Might be. Sounds like him. It might even be the same book that I, I got the Richard B. First Banshee story from. I have to get that book. My birthday's coming up. I will ask for that book for my birthday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we have, uh, we have discussed the Banshee. We have I think, indeed. I think we will uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Nisha, if people want to find you and uh, find more stories from you or just uh, sort of have a vague idea where you are, where could they find you? Uh, I am currently occasionally stalking the the Twitter. Oh, I the have Twitter. been I have been known to frequent the Twitter and the best way to, to catch me at the moment is on our monthly show. Yeah, we've been doing a, a monthly live stream thing, which we may be launching its own channel for. 
Uh, hopefully. Hopefully. So at the moment, best place to find me to hear proper stories is uh, on Zoom on the last Thursday of every month. If people are looking to ask questions or anything like that, I am awful at replying promptly, but I will always reply. And Twitter, it's Nisha Odin. Because amazingly, that name wasn't taken on Twitter for some reason. I, I'll put a link um, because yeah. spelling Irish the links, names. The links, and there will probably uh, since this uh, pandemic doesn't seem to be lifting anytime soon, uh, there will be more places you can find my material. Trust me. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me with me, telling me banshee stories. Thank, oh, you, so thank much. you for having me. Thank you, and thank you uh, for listening to this episode of Tales from the Shadows. Hopefully we will be more frequent now that I've worked out how to record remotely. As mentioned before, if you would like to find out more information about Nisha and what he is up to, there is a link to his Twitter in the description. There's also the links to the Tales from the Shadows social media. We're Tales from the Shadows on there rather than Sounds for the Shadows because reasons. There's also a link to our Patreon and our Ko-fi if you would like to support the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed. Goodbye. Keep safe. Wear a mask and wash your hands. 